Chapter 9 of Men Like Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel T. Garcia. Men Like Gods by H. G. Wells. Chapter 9. Book the Second. Quarantine Crag. Chapter the First. The Epidemic. 1. The shadow of the great epidemic in Utopia fell upon our little band of earthlings in the second day after their eruption. For more than twenty centuries, the Utopians had had the completest freedom from infectious and contagious disease of all sorts. Not only had the graver epidemic fevers and all sorts of skin diseases gone out of the lives of animals and men, but all the minor infections of colds, coughs, influenzas, and the like had also been mastered and ended. By isolation, by the control of carriers, and so forth, the fatal germs had been cornered and obliged to die out, and there had followed a corresponding change in the utopian physiology. Secretions and reactions that had given the body resisting power to infection had diminished. The energy that produced them had been withdrawn to other more serviceable applications. The utopian physiology, relieved of these merely defensive necessities, had simplified itself and become more direct and efficient. This cleaning up of infections was such ancient history in Utopia that only those who specialized in the history of pathology understood anything of the miseries mankind had suffered under from this source. And even these specialists do not seem to have had any idea of how far the race had lost its former resistance to infection. The first person to think of this lost resisting power seems to have been Mr. Rupert Catskill. Mr. Barnstaple recalled that when they had met early on the first morning of their stay in the conference gardens, he had been hinting that nature was in some unexplained way on the side of the earthlings. If making them obnoxious was being on their side, then certainly nature was on their side. By the evening of the second day after their arrival, nearly everybody who had been in contact with the earthlings with the exception of lichness, serpentine, and three or four others who had retained something of their ancestral antitoxins was in a fever with cough, sore throat, aching bones, headache, and such physical depression and misery as Utopia had not known for twenty centuries. The first inhabitant of Utopia to die was that leopard which had sniffed at Mr. Rupert Catskill on his first arrival. It was found unaccountably dead on the second morning after that encounter. In the afternoon of the same day, one of the girls who had helped Lady Stella to unpack her bags sickened suddenly and died. Utopia was even less prepared for the coming of these disease germs than for the coming of the earthlings who brought them. The monstrous multitude of general and fever hospitals, doctors, drug shops, and so forth that had existed in the last age of confusion had long since passed out of memory. There was a surgical service for accidents, and a watch kept upon the health of the young, and there were places of rest at which those who were extremely old were assisted. But there remained scarcely anything of the hygienic organization that had formerly struggled against disease. Abruptly, the utopian intelligence had to take up again a tangle of problems long since solved and set aside, to improvise forgotten apparatus and organizations for disinfection and treatment, and to return to all the disciplines of the war against diseases that had marked an epoch in its history twenty centuries before. In one respect, indeed, that war had left Utopia with certain permanent advantages. Nearly all the insect disease carriers had been exterminated and rats and mice and the untidier sorts of small bird had passed out of the problem of sanitation. That set very definite limits to the spread of the new infections and to the nature of the infections that could be spread. It enabled the earthlings only to communicate such ailments as could be breathed across an interval or conveyed by a contaminating touch. 
Though not one of them was ailing at all, it became clear that someone among them had brought latent measles into the utopian universe, and that three or four of them had liberated a long-suppressed influenza. Themselves too tough to suffer, they remained at the focus of these two epidemics, while their victims coughed and sneezed and kissed and whispered them about the utopian planet. It was not until the afternoon of the second day after the eruption that Utopia realized what had happened, and set itself to deal with this relapse into barbaric solicitudes. 2. Mr. Barnstaple was probably the last of the earthlings to hear of the epidemic. He was away from the rest of the party upon an expedition of his own. It was early clear to him that the Utopians did not intend to devote any considerable amount of time or energy to the edification of their earthling visitors. After the eclaircissement of the afternoon of the eruption, there were no further attempts to lecture to the visitors upon the constitution and methods of Utopia, and only some very brief questioning upon the earthly state of affairs. The earthlings were left very much together to talk things out among themselves. Several Utopians were evidently entrusted with their comfort and well-being, but they did not seem to think that their functions extended to edification. Mr. Barnstaple found much to irritate him in the ideas and comments of several of his associates, and so he obeyed his natural inclination to explore Utopia for himself. There was something that stirred his imagination in the vast plain below the lake that he had glimpsed before his aeroplane descended into the valley of the conference, and on his second morning he had taken a little boat and rowed out across the lake to examine the dam that retained its waters and to get a view of the great plain from the parapet of the dam. The lake was much wider than he had thought it, and the dam much larger. The water was crystalline clear and very cold, and there were but few fish in it. He had come out immediately after his breakfast, but it was near midday before he had got to the parapet of the great dam and could look down the lower valley to the great plain. The dam was built of huge blocks of red and gold-veined rock, but steps at intervals gave access to the roadway along its crest. The great seated figures which brooded over the distant plain had been put there, it would seem, in a mood of artistic lightheartedness. They sat as if they watched or thought. Vast, rude shapes, half mountainous, half human. Mr. Barnstaple guessed them to be perhaps two hundred feet high. By pacing the distance between two of them, and afterwards counting the number of them, he came to the conclusion that the dam was between seven and ten miles long. On the far side it dropped sheerly for perhaps five hundred feet, and it was sustained by a series of enormous buttresses that passed almost insensibly into native rock. In the bays between these buttresses hummed great batteries of water turbines, and then, its first task done, the water dropped foaming and disheveled and gathered in another broad lake retained by a second great dam two miles or so away, and perhaps a thousand feet lower. Far away was a third lake and a third dam, and then the plain. Only three or four minute-looking utopians were visible amidst all this titanic engineering. Mr. Barnstaple stood, the smallest of objects, in the shadow of a brooding colossus and peered over these nearer things at the hazy levels of the plain beyond. What sort of life was going on there? The relationship of plain to mountain reminded him very strongly of the Alps and the great plain of northern Italy, down into which he had walked as the climax of many a summer holiday in his youth. In Italy he knew that those distant levels would be covered with clustering towns and villages and carefully irrigated and closely cultivated fields. A dense population would be toiling with an ant-like industry in the production of food forever increasing its numbers until those inevitable consequences of overcrowding disease and pestilence established a sort of balance between the area of the land and the number of families scraping at it for nourishment. As a toiling man can grow more food than he can actually eat, 
and as virtuous women can bear more children than the land can possibly employ, a surplus of landless population would be gathered in when-like towns and cities, engaged there in legal and financial operations against the agriculturalist, or in the manufacture of just plausible articles for sale. Ninety-nine out of every hundred of this population would be concentrated from childhood to old age upon the difficult task which is known as getting a living. Amidst it, sustained by a pretense of magical propitiations, would rise shrines and temples supporting a parasitic host of priests and monks and nuns. Eating and breeding, the simple routines of the common life since human societies began, complications of food-getting, elaborations of acquisitiveness and a tribute paid to fear. Such would be the spectacle that any warm and fertile stretch of earth would still display. There would be gleams of laughter and humor there, brief interludes of holiday, flashes of youth before its extinction and adult toil, but a driven labor, the spite and hates of overcrowding, the eternal uncertainty of destitution would dominate the scene. Decrepitude would come by sixty. Women would be old and worn out by forty. But this utopian plain below, sunlit and fertile though it was, was under another law. Here that common life of mankind, its ancient traditions, its hoary jests and tales repeated generation after generation, its seasonal festivals, its pious fears and spasmodic indulgences, its limited yet incessant and pitifully childish hoping, and its abounding misery and tragic futility had come to an end. It had passed forever out of this older world. That high tide of common living had receded and vanished while the soil was still productive and the sun still shone. It was with something like awe that Mr. Barnstaple realized how clean a sweep had been made of the common life in a mere score of centuries, how boldly and dreadfully the mind of man had taken hold, soul and body and destiny, of the life and destiny of the race. He knew himself now for the creature of transition he was, so deep in the habits of the old, so sympathetic with the idea of the new that has still but scarcely dawned on earth. For long he had known how intensely he loathed and despised that reeking peasant life which is our past. He realized now for the first time how profoundly he feared the high, austere utopian life which lies before us. This world he looked out upon seemed very clean and dreadful to him. What were they doing upon those distant plains? What daily life did they lead there? He knew enough of Utopia now to know that the whole land would be like a garden, with every natural tendency to beauty seized upon and developed, and every innate ugliness corrected and overcome. These people could work and struggle for loveliness, he knew, for his two rose growers had taught him as much. And to and fro the food folk and the housing people and those who ordered the general life went, keeping the economic machine running so smoothly that one heard nothing of the jangling and jarring and internal breakages that constitute the dominant melody in our earth's affairs the ages of economic disputes and experiments had come to an end the right way to do things had been found and the population of this utopia which had shrunken at one time to only two hundred million was now increasing again to keep pace with the constant increase in human resources Having freed itself from a thousand evils that would otherwise have grown with its growth, the race could grow indeed. And down there under the blue haze of the great plain, almost all those who were not engaged in the affairs of food and architecture, health, education, and the correlation of activities, were busied upon creative work. They were continually exploring the world without, or the world within, through scientific research and artistic creation. They were continually adding to their collective power over life, or to the realized worth of life. Mr. Barnstaple was accustomed to think of our own world as a wild rush of inventions and knowledge, 
But all the progress of Earth for a hundred years could not compare, he knew, with the forward swing of these millions of associated intelligences in one single year. Knowledge swept forward here and darkness passed as the shadow of a cloud passes on a windy day. Down there they were assaying the minerals that lie in the heart of their planet and weaving a web to capture the sun and the stars. Life marched here. It was terrifying to think with what strides. Terrifying, because at the back of Mr. Barnstaple's mind, as at the back of so many intelligent minds in our world still, had been the persuasion that presently everything would be known and the scientific process come to an end, and then we should be happy forever after. He was not really acclimated to progress. He had always thought of utopia as a tranquility with everything settled for good. Even today it seemed tranquil under that level haze, but he knew that this quiet was the steadiness of a mill race, which seems almost motionless in its quiet onrush until a bubble or a fleck of foam or some stick or leaf shoots along it and reveals its velocity. And how did it feel to be living in utopia? The lives of the people must be like the lives of very successful artists or scientific workers in this world. A continual refreshing discovery of new things, a constant adventure into the unknown and untried. For recreation they went about their planet, and there was much love and laughter and friendship in Utopia, and an abundant, easy, informal social life. Games that did not involve bodily exercise, those substitutes of the half-witted for research and mental effort, had gone entirely out of life. But many active games were played for the sake of fun and bodily vigor. It must be a good life for those who had been educated to live it, indeed, a most enviable life. And pervading it all must be the happy sense that it mattered. It went on to endless consequences. And they loved, no doubt, subtly and deliciously, but perhaps a little hardly. Perhaps in those distant plains there was not much pity or tenderness. Bright and lovely beings they were, in no way pitiful. There would be no need for those qualities. Yet the woman, Lichness, looked kind. Did they keep faith or need to keep faith as earthly lovers do? What was love like in Utopia? Lovers still whispered in the dusk. What was the essence of love? A preference? A sweet pride? A delightful gift won? The most exquisite reassurance of body and mind? What could it be like to love and be loved by one of these Utopian women? To have her glowing face close to one's own? to be quickened into life by her kiss. Mr. Barnstaple sat in his flannels, barefooted, in the shadow of a stone colossus. He felt like some minute stray insect, perched upon the big dam. It seemed to him that it was impossible that this triumphant utopian race could ever fall back again from its magnificent attack upon the dominion of all things. High and tremendously this world had clamored and was still clamoring. Surely it was safe now in its attainment. Yet all this stupendous security and mastery of nature had come about in the little space of three thousand years. The race could not have altered fundamentally in that brief interval. Essentially, it was still a Stone Age race. It was not twenty thousand years away from the dangers when it knew nothing of metals and could not read or write. Deep in its nature, arrested and undeveloped, there still lay the seeds of anger and fear and dissension. There must still be many uneasy and insubordinate spirits in this utopia. Eugenics had scarcely begun here. He remembered the keen sweet face of the young girl who had spoken to him in the starlight on the night of his arrival, and the note of romantic eagerness in her voice when she had asked if Lord Baralonga was not a very vigorous and cruel man. Did the romantic spirit still trouble imaginations here? Possibly only adolescent imaginations. 
Might not some great shock or some phase of confusion still be possible to this immense order? Might not its system of education become wearied by its task of discipline and fall a prey to the experimental spirit? Might not the unforeseen be still lying in wait for this race? Suppose there should prove to be an infection of Father Amerton's religious fervor, or Rupert Catskill's incurable craving for fantastic enterprises. No, it was inconceivable. The achievement of this world was too calmly great and assured. Mr. Barnstaple stood up and made his way down the steps of the great dam to where, far below, his little skiff floated like a minute flower petal upon the clear water. 3. He became aware of a considerable commotion in the conference places. There were more than thirty aeroplanes circling in the air and descending and ascending from the park, and a great number of big white vehicles were coming and going by the pass road. Also, people seemed to be moving briskly among the houses, but it was too far off to distinguish what they were doing. He stared for a time, and then got into his little boat. He could not watch what was going on as he returned across the lake because his back was towards the slopes. But once an aeroplane came down very close to him, and he saw its occupant looking at him as he rowed, and once when he rested from rowing and sat around to look, he saw what he thought was a litter carried by two men. As he drew near the shore, a boat put off to meet him. He was astonished to see that its occupants were wearing what looked like helmets of glass with white pointed visors. He was enormously astonished and puzzled. As they approached, their message resonated into his mind. Quarantine. You have to go into quarantine. You earthlings have started an epidemic and it is necessary to put you into quarantine. Then these glass helmets must be a sort of gas mask. When they came alongside him, he saw that this was so. They were made of highly flexible and perfectly translucent material. 4. Mr. Barnstaple was taken past some sleeping lodges where utopians were lying in beds while others who wore gas masks waited upon them. He found that all the earthlings and all their possessions, except their cars, were assembled in the hall of the first day's conference. He was told that the whole party were to be removed to a new place where they could be isolated and treated. The only utopians with the party were two who wore gas masks and lounged in the open portico in attitudes disagreeably suggestive of sentries or custodians. The earthlings sat about in little groups among the seats, except for Mr. Rupert Catskill, who was walking up and down in the apse, talking. He was hatless, flushed, and excited, with his hair in some disorder. "'It's what I foresaw would happen all along,' he repeated. "'Didn't I tell you nature was on our side? Didn't I say it?' Mr. Burley was shocked and argumentative. "'For the life of me, I can't see the logic of it,' he declared. "'Here we are, absolutely the only perfectly immune people here, and we, we are to be isolated.' "'They say they catch things from us,' said Lady Stella. "'Very well,' said Mr. Burley, making his point with his long white hand. "'Very well, then let them be isolated. "'This is Chinese. This is topsy-turvy. I'm disappointed in them.' "'I suppose it's their world,' said Mr. Hunker. "'And we've got to do things their way.' Mr. Catskill concentrated upon Lord Baralanga and the two chauffeurs. "'I welcome this treatment. I welcome it.' "'What's your idea, Rupert?' said his lordship. We lose our freedom of action. Not at all, said Mr. Catskill. Not at all. We gain it. We are to be isolated. We are to be put by ourselves in some island or mountain. Well and good, well and good. This is only the beginning of our adventures. We shall see what we shall see. But how? Wait a little. Until we can speak more freely. These are panic measures. This pestilence is only in its opening stage. 
Everything is just beginning, trust me. Mr. Barnstable sat sulkily by his valise, avoiding the challenge of Mr. Catskill's eye. End of chapter 9 Recording by Daniel T. Garcia